0: Welcome to episode 13 of the Various and Sundry podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined in studio as always by my good friend and sometimes source of first human contact in the morning, John Sloat. That's right. And quick clarification, you said in studio. Well, virtual studio.
1: Virtual studio.
0: Yes. 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 Since you're we are we're all trying to obey our government authorities here by um by maintaining a uh, a self quarantine here in the state of Indiana and so we are giving this a go through the wonderful technology of zoom and i, I got to think that zoom is just absolutely exploding with revenue at this point right i mean i know they did the free thing for the k through 12 but um you know, I think Zoom has gone from something that a, a few people, some people, used to something that is now essentially uh, become well, it's be, it's become a verb now, right? It's just like f- you FaceTime someone, you Skype someone, now you Zoom someone.
1: Yeah, yeah, kind of like you Google something. Yeah, it's now absolutely. it's now you Zoom people, and I think you and I knew about it because we were working with online students. Yeah, uh, and we we would. We would use it uh, fair, fairly regularly, um, and I think I think I like it better than Google Meet uh, personally. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, it's becoming well known. And I actually sent Zoom an email when all this started, going, Are "You gonna be able to handle
0: all this?" Uh, they never got back to me, but clearly they've been able <laughs> to handle all this. So per, so perhaps the answer is, if by all of this you mean including emails like this, the answer is no. But if you mean uh, server capacity to host a billion of these, uh, video calls, then apparently the answer is yes. Yeah. The server capacity is quite good. The customer service though. Not mm. so much, not so yeah. much. Well, we do appreciate you, uh, you joining us. We appreciate your understanding if perhaps our, uh, audio quality is not what we are accustomed to, but in our test run yesterday, it felt like it was, it was pretty good. So I feel like we're, we're in good shape here. Uh, we still encourage you to reach out and connect with us via Twitter at V and S pod. And you can always email the show various and sundry podcast at gmail.com. We want to encourage you to uh, depending on whatever uh, podcast service you're using to go ahead and give us a five star rating to help people find us more uh, efficiently We'd love for more people to experience the randomness of the Various and Sundry podcast. And obviously, we encourage you to share uh, on social media if you find an episode enjoyable, if you want to share on Facebook, on Twitter, or even on Instagram. We don't have a an Instagram feed, and we've talked about starting a Facebook page. We haven't done that yet, but you know, who knows? Maybe that'll that, be...
1: That's on the quarantine to-do list for yeah, sure. Yeah, good, yeah.
0: good. So well we are uh again our normal procedure is to do some measure of talk about sports and uh in this weird scenario that we're in now there really are no sports to talk about but i i I will note that uh several networks are indeed replaying old uh sporting events which is clearly not the same but if you you know need to get your fix uh CBS and CBS Sports Network have been airing some classic NCAA tournament games. And um, my guess is you probably saw this, Sloat, that the MLB Network is re-airing classic baseball games.
1: Yeah, yeah. And MLB, uh, MLB TV, which I'm a subscriber to, opened up their archives for the last two seasons. Um, so you can watch any game from the last two years as well. Wow.
0: And just recently now, within the last couple of days, as we're recording here on March 31st, uh Fox and ESPN and NBC Sports Network as well as FS1 uh have announced they're going to begin airing classic NFL football games uh over the past, from past few years and so you know networks are obviously trying to do uh what they can actually even NBA TV uh the NBA has uh opened up their game pass subscription for free oh, which nice uh, allows you to go into their archives as well, and even if you're if you're a subscriber to YouTube TV and get NBA TV, uh, they have all of the finals games from uh, from 2000 to the present. Like every single game of the finals, oh, so you can go awesome. back in and yeah. watch uh, hmm. old finals uh, series and individual games. So it's a it's you know it's it's something. It's obviously not ideal. And um it doesn't grab my attention the way that live sports does, but it is something to scratch the itch.
1: Yeah. And I, I've seen sports radio shows have begun to, to cancel. Um I, I think partly for social distancing reasons. I also think just lack of content.
0: Yeah, what do you talk about? What what I do mean? You- I've not even like I I've occasionally checked in on what is you know what is ESPN doing and it feels like like I what I don't get is like what are shows like First Take or um you know what's the uh there's the equivalent on FS1 with my least favorite uh sports person Skip Bayless what's that one Undisputed is that Undisputed no? yeah okay. which is First Take but on on Fox I think yeah Yeah um yeah what are these people talking about? I mean, there's been a little bit of NFL free agency movement, kind of stuff, but is that really enough to to fill all the programming hours?
1: Yeah, I I, I don't think so. Um, I saw ESPN did a list of the greatest college basketball players of all time, um, but they had the fans voting, and they voted, I think Shaquille O'Neal over uh, uh, Kareem, um, and so there was some there were some people getting very very upset. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's, it's, it's just a, it's just a void of, of content and and people, I I think are really struggling to figure out, goodness, what do we do? This machine that has produced content for years, non, nonstop, um, is, is, is now done. Uh, very strange to a screeching halt, which is just a, another factor of this is just a weird time. Um, this is a weird piece of human history
0: that we're in right now it is it is, and I think that um, when you when you think about the fact that you know for for me kind of the uh, kind of the defining worldwide event uh, was nine eleven right so i was Same. I was actually in seminary when nine eleven happened um, and you know that was sort of the defining event, but when you think about my kids so twenty one and eighteen almost twenty two and nineteen now um you know my oldest son john was alive and so was jake but barely barely in terms of, so jake has no memory of it and john barely has any memories of it so uh this is now their defining sort of global crisis cultural moment that will probably resonate with them uh for the rest of their lives i would think
1: yeah. Yeah. And I remember, I remember thinking when 9-11 was going on, I remember going as in a, I was, uh, you were in seminary, I was in middle school. Um, I remember going, oh my goodness, this is devastating. And this is uh, highly formative, right? right? This is going to shape um, millennials uh, in a lot of way that upcoming generation. And, and, and in a similar way, I think this is going to uh, shape uh, generation Z and probably be uh the line in the sand for the next generation you know nine eleven is sort of that line in the sand between millennial and gen z Uh yeah. this will probably be the line in the sand between gen z and the next generation which i'm i'm hearing called generation c um after, COVID? Uh, covid generation covid yeah oh come yeah. on generation c <laughs> uh, i read in uh, the
0: atlantic this week yeah oh gosh well um in light of the fact that uh, we are in a uh, just a, a strange uh, period of time right now uh, we we decided that one of the that the main thing we want to talk about today was this whole issue of lament and mm-hmm. so why don't we start that with um, from your perspective when you think of the term lament like what do you have in mind what does that what does that even mean for perhaps for someone who's who's listening and saying, I I, I don't even know what you really mean by that term lament?
1: Yeah, uh, I would say three weeks ago I probably didn't have a great uh, a mental framework even for it or be able to give a definition because it's just something pretty foreign uh, that that we don't talk about regularly. But but when I think of it, I I, I generally think of. Uh, sadness uh but sadness uh mixed with uh hope and belief in a god who is sovereign is is sort of how i would i would couch that how would you uh add any
0: caveats there i don't think so um i think that you've you've hit on that that note uh to distinguish it from uh a sorrow slash despair um, that, that that's kind of the key distinction when, uh, biblically speaking, you talk about the idea of lament. There is always within it an element of hope, even if that note of hope is very faint and uh, barely there, it's, it's still there underlying uh, that, that sense of lament, uh, that sense of sorrow.
1: Um, just, uh, off the cuff, what passages do you go to when you think of lament? What, what, what things, what, what, what stories in in scripture really come to mind for you?
0: Yeah, well, I think that, uh, in one sense, the, the obvious place is, um, is to go to, uh, the, the book named Lamentations in in the Bible. So, um, and you know, that, that book was, uh, it's, debated uh, who wrote it. It's typically in our English Bibles grouped with uh, Jeremiah because that's the sort of traditional uh, understanding of the authorship, even though the book itself never comes out and says who wrote it. Uh, so it's possible that Jeremiah wrote it, but uh, we just don't know. But hmm. what's interesting is that um, in doing some, some research this week, uh, I was reminded of the fact that uh that book, by the way, in the Old Testament, occurs in a different place in the, uh, in the Old Testament, depending on uh, which Old Testament you're reading. Meaning, if you're reading the Old Testament according to the order of the books in the Hebrew Bible, it's grouped in with the books of Ruth, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes, and Esther. Whereas in our English Bibles, it's put right after Jeremiah, uh, the the prophet Jeremiah. So,
1: so in the English Bible, it seems that the organizer of the Old Testament uh, was trying to say, "Oh, this is uh, this is a particular lament of the fall of Jerusalem," which Jeremiah ends yes. with, right? Um, whereas in the Hebrew Bible, maybe more more generally speaking.
0: Yeah, even though uh, liturgically speaking, the Jewish people would read the book of Lamentations to commemorate the destruction of Solomon's temple in 587. uh, The fact that they would annually read this was a way of connecting their ongoing lament uh, at the, at whatever circumstances they were facing uh, to that sort of historical event. But it it had the effect of generalizing that, Hmm. that that piece of uh, their experience that uh, lament is, Something that is not um, not out of the ordinary, that it's built into their very cycle of the way that they think about life that that that's how the Jewish people sort of perceive that, which is a pretty sharp contrast to how much of our uh sort of evangelical traditions treat lament, which is to say, not at all <laughs> <laughs> right? Is that your perception as well?
1: Yeah, I I can't remember uh, too much uh, too much teaching I've heard on uh, lament or or if I have and it's quite possible that I have I've I've just for, forgotten. Um, but, uh, but but has that been your experience as well?
0: Yeah, I think so. I I'm convinced that we um, we just don't see many examples of it within our um, within much of the evangelical tradition. It's just not something that uh is a, a regular part of our sort of diet of worship so to speak
1: yeah H- however, it is a part of the the biblical narrative i mean when you when you begin when you begin digging in uh to the biblical narrative, you see lament really really all over the place when when you begin to have an eye for it i mean yeah. um, we often think of um uh, I think we could you know I was just thinking about this we could. We could couch uh, the letter to the letter uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy as a, as a bit of lament as well, right? Um, with his uh, getting getting ready to be to be killed to be executed, uh, there there's there's a sadness in that letter, but also a hopefulness in the gospel that it's going to go forward and 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 that he's commissioning Timothy to carry it on.
0: Yeah, and obviously you've got uh, a number of psalms that are explicitly. Uh, geared towards expressing sorrow and disappointment over uh, things that God's people are experiencing, whether it's uh, a national sort of tragedy or whether it's even over uh, our own sin, that there's a sense of lament that comes with recognizing our own sinfulness. And so I think that, uh, that those are just elements of the Bible that in a lot of evangelical traditions that we, we just don't even uh, touch, in, uh, uh, touch on in terms of uh, our worship or even our preaching or even things like that. So I guess my question is, why do you think that is? Why is it as a general rule that we yeah. as evangelicals uh, don't tend to uh, talk about or engage in lament?
1: oh goodness
0: um well i
1: I think my answer is there's probably a lot of answers right there's probably mm-hmm. many many factors that play into it um one of them that that comes to mind almost immediately is uh that that we're we do mirror our culture in a lot of ways um right there there is a desire uh to uh to be happy there is a desire to feel good there you know and and pain is seen as uh, and sadness even is seen as an evil and, and, and bad thing. Yeah. Um, uh, which it certainly ha- certainly has, th- that's certainly true, right? Right. It is a, it is a, it is a piece of living in a fallen world. Um, sure. but there is a belief in the modern world that, that this should not be part of our daily experience. Um, it should, uh, be on the periphery. It should be forgotten about. Um, and so I think when when something like this comes along, you know it it forces uh, uh, sadness and sorrow right into the right on the main stage
0: Yeah, I think that part of uh the dynamic though that's that is interesting to me is there's a sense in which you're right that our 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 culture and even our evangelical culture um doesn't really. Do this well typically because we we don't um, we don't think that that these realities should be right and isn't that I mean biblically speaking there's an argument to be made for that right that you know we as evangelicals believe that the world is not the way it's supposed to be right now and sure. that Sin and death and the curse are all working their way out and have penetrated every single aspect of creation. And so there's absolutely a sense in which we long for, rightly, what uh, Revelation 21 and 22 describe in terms of a new creation that's consummated where there is no uh, sickness, no more mourning, no more um, death. None of the effects of sin are there anymore anymore. And this piece of our experience of sadness of lament will once and for all be put away. Uh, and yet, I think that uh, not to get too theological, but there's a sense in which uh, our failure to uh, to embrace lament can be an an expression of overrealized eschatology, which is which is just a really big. Uh, expression uh, to say that we expect more of uh, m- more of what is reserved only for the new heavens and the new earth to be a reality in this fallen world, so that we we overexpect. I think sometimes a life of comfort, of joy, and of ease that uh, is a combination of uh, our cultural expectations plus maybe some uh, flawed theology that expects, oh, well, I'm a child of the King. I've been saved by grace. I have God's Spirit. Of course, everything should just be going super well for me all the time. And God hasn't promised that in this life. He hasn't promised us that until the new heavens and the new earth. And so, Matt,
1: how can we how can we go about practicing lament well like like what are some some really uh, tangible ways we can we can take lament and uh and do, do it well
0: well i think there's a sense in which in a season like we're all experiencing now with uh, a massive uh historical and cultural event that in one sense it should be easy during times like this that um, it should be rather easy to see that uh, we're in a moment where part of the proper response is to express sadness. That sadness is a is a good thing in the sense that <clears throat> it is intended to be the response when we're confronted with tragedy. Uh, suffering and those kinds of things, and so I, I think the first step is recognizing that this is a this is the right response. It yeah. is something that is that should these events should provoke a level of sadness and lament in us. And the passage I regularly go back to to uh, as the starting point on this is in John 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. I've always been struck by this that when he goes out to the tomb, he knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that in like five minutes, he's going to call Lazarus out and there's going to be celebration like nobody's ever seen. And yet, as he's standing at the tomb and he sees the sorrow of everyone else around him and he experiences in his incarnate uh, flesh, the sadness that death brings. Hmm. He weeps, he cries, even though he knows in a few minutes he's going to call Lazarus out. And so Jesus enters into our sorrow. He enters into our lamenting over death and suffering. And uh, even though he knows that he's about to, in one sense, fix it by raising Lazarus from the dead, so I think those are some of the starting points of having good theological foundations in place for this whole idea of lament. Um, anything else that that you think of when it comes to maybe some theological or biblical grounding for that before, maybe we talk about some uh, maybe some practices that we can uh, encourage to uh, facilitate. Lamenting it,
1: yeah. One more reflection I have on that story is is that it it strikes a proper balance, right? But between you know, we as Christians should should really be following the example of Jesus here, where he is he is not simply looking to the future and go, oh, everything's going to be great, Um, but he's also not in despair in the present moment either, um, knowing that Lazarus is dead. There's a there's a weeping and a sadness with uh, a realization of what is going to take place. And, and that should really model for us um, how, how, to, how to begin to think about lament, right? Yeah, absolutely. Being able to, uh, in the moment, go, oh my gosh, um, thousands around the world are dying. Um, I, I, you know, just, just the other day, I, our health experts came out in the United States and said, this will be a major victory if we have 100,000 dead. Yeah. if we can, if we can hold it to a hundred thousand, which is, which is incredibly, incredibly sad. yeah. um, um and we'll, will uh, you know, leave a, leave a scar on our, on our world. Right. Uh, but at the same time, knowing that there is coming a day when God is going to make all things new yes. um, and there is coming a day, uh, when, when he will wipe away every tear, uh, and sadness will be no more, or is, uh, as uh oh my one of my favorite lines from Tolkien uh you know all sad things will become untrue um, yeah
0: you know. yeah and um i mean speaking of tolkien he he actually i think i think this is right i think he may have coined the term are you familiar with this term eucatastrophe? catastrophe yes yes he did he did coin that term uh, yeah so we think of the idea of a <clears throat> catastrophe something bad and um he coined this term eucatastrophe, catastrophe so with the prefix "EU," uh, that that has the, the meaning of good. So, a, and this this idea of the of the U-catastrophe in Tolkien's mind was this concept of a sudden and dramatic uh, change of fortune, so to speak, from something in the midst of darkness and despair. a a dramatic transformation to something phenomenally good happening. And he even specifically uh, said the ultimate example of that is the the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? That that the resurrection is the ultimate catastrophe, the sudden good coming out of a dark, awful situation.
1: Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely, I forgot about that term, but you're right. He did he did coin that term and use the cross as an example. And I mean, yeah. I obviously wrote about it in Lord of the Rings, right? Yep. I don't want to spoil the ending, but
0: well, I feel like at this point, um, it's on you if, if 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 you feel offended by us spoiling the ending of Lord of the Rings. But uh, in any case, so let's talk maybe about some some ways that maybe both. Individually and um, and corporately, that we can uh, maybe take steps towards getting better at this area of lament.
1: Yeah, um, I, I I think lots, particularly in the church, I think lots of these things begin uh, in, in in this in the sermon in a lot of ways. So so beginning to talk about um, what we do with sadness, uh, what we do with despair, um, straight from, uh, from the pulpit, um, as well as, as well as I would say using, uh, personally, um, using, uh, using the Psalms as a, as a, as a bit of a guidebook, a way to, to speak back uh, yeah. to God. Um, I, um, uh, my, uh, uh Tim Keller always says uh, about the Psalms that that the rest of the Bible really speaks to us and the the Psalms really speak for us. Right. And so it's a guide for us to be able to speak back to God.
0: Yeah. I think that, um, that really is a a helpful piece. And I think that another element is, uh, perhaps we as evangelicals need to be more intentional about preaching texts that, that are lament texts, Hmm. uh, whether that means preaching, you know, a few weeks through Lamentations, or even, like I've noticed this, it's not very common, you think about this, it's not very common to preach through the entirety of the Psalms, right? Not many churches, even if they're committed to expository preaching, say, we're just going to start in Psalm 1, and we're going to go all the way through to 150. That's just not very common. Yeah, the next three years, you know. Yes. <laughs> but when when churches tend to preach the psalms, what they tend to do is cherry pick, obviously. And uh, I think that perhaps this is an area where uh, churches need to be more intentional about preaching and teaching psalms of lament that uh, that capture that uh, that that sorrow and sadness and helping us to uh, to express it in in godly ways. I think that. Uh, oftentimes we as as believers may not even know how to express sadness and sorrow in godly ways that we can go to uh a couple of different extremes we can go to the we just try to suppress it and pretend like we're not really sad or that it doesn't exist and just sort of put on the well you know bible says rejoice in all things so okay i'm just gonna pretend like i'm happy uh And ignore the really awful things that that are happening in my life or in the world that should make me sad, or we allow that sadness to slip into despair, and that's not healthy either. That's not godly either. And so I think there's the 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 Psalms of Lament as well as Lamentations itself help us to strike that balance of no, these things legitimately are awful, and they they should make you sad. Like, Mm. it is right to be sad about these things, and yet they still present hope. They still present comfort in the fact that uh, God is sovereign, and even if we can't and often don't have any sort of way of giving an explanation of why is God ordaining or allowing this to happen? Rarely do we have a clear answer to that, if ever, to be honest. And yet, uh, the fact that we don't have an answer to that doesn't mean that we're just left with uh, a sense of despair, that we can trust God. We know that his ultimate purposes for creation are good, and that his ultimate purpose for us as his people is our eternal good, even if in the current circumstances we face, uh, it doesn't feel like these are good things for us eternally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, I think you, you hit on something really, really strong there. Um, there's this, Oh goodness. There's this, you know, we, we have people that either are looking on the sunny side of things and going, you know, this is always great, or this is always terrible. And, you know, I think the Psalms, I think you're right. They they strike that really excellent balance. And I, I think there is a temptation uh, to go, Oh, God is doing this because of X. You know, God yep. is doing this for this reason. And I, I don't think that's always the most helpful response. Um, God might be doing uh, that thing over there, um, but but really, the 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 ways of God are so complex and and mysterious uh, that that I don't think we can boil it down that simply. Is, right. is, is that fair statement?
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, and you know. Uh, I I don't know if you really wanted to go here or not, but uh, we had a little text exchange yesterday about uh, yeah, an article right. by N. T. Wright in yeah. Time Magazine. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, bully for him to uh, to have you know for him to be able to speak in a, a deeply secular context that he has uh, achieved a status where. Even a secular magazine like Time wants to know what N.T. Wright uh, thinks about uh, this current crisis from a Christian perspective. So uh, that's fantastic. And, you know, N.T. Wright's one of those people that he writes so much that no one fully agrees with everything he writes because he just writes so much. I'm not even sure that Tom Wright agrees with everything that he (laughs) writes. (laughs) So, um, you know, we had a little exchange about this, so why don't you uh why don't you start us off on this and maybe you can highlight the things that that you think are really good about this yeah. article, and then I'll give some gentle pushback uh on some things that i uh, I wish he had done differently
1: yeah, yeah, um so uh maybe maybe a bit more of the stories. You and I did a zoom call like this yesterday to to test the recording, basically uh and so we were one of the things we were discussing is what do we talk about um um, and we talked about the idea of lament uh and then i uh uh, we got off the call went downstairs was you know as one does scrolling through twitter and and came across that article opened it read the first couple of lines and just sent it to you and i i think i said nt right to the rescue
0: you did yeah (laughs)
1: um so something something like that and uh and you know gave, gave it a, a cursory read saw some you know nt right one of the great qualities of him is he's quite pithy when he writes at a popular level
0: yeah absolutely um,
1: so one of the one of the lines that i just loved that i really latched onto was lament um is the christian response when we don't get the answer to why yeah. uh and and you know that's a great line and he was uh you know taking down the the you know, there's, there's these, um, and he uses British words, which are fantastic, you know, the, the dodgy explanations of why this is happening, you know, all these things. And I was just really resonating with that. I'm like, oh yes. And so, uh, and then, and then you responded like, well, I wish he wouldn't have said some of the things he said. I'm like, what, what, what? And so, um, when, uh, when you pointed out the, the, the paragraph to me where he says, you know, we often picture God, uh, basically as sovereign over everything, but that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is one of lament. and, uh, and
0: uh, Well, I'll let, I'll let you take it from here. Uh, you, you have some issues, as, as do I. I have those issues. Yeah, so I think that, um, again, much of what Tom Wright says in this article about, um, about God entering into our grieving and our lamenting uh, is very true and super helpful that uh it's good for us to remember that not only in the example that we talked about earlier with Jesus entering into uh, lament when it came to the death of his friend Lazarus, but even in the Old Testament itself, there are expressions of God grieving you know he he he's grieved at the wickedness of humanity in Genesis six, and so he brings about the flood, and that there are plenty of those kinds of expressions, and so I think I think what what Tom Wright is trying to do here is to say that God is indeed uh, engaged in this world. He's he's grieved by sickness and 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 sin and those kinds of things, and yet what uh, what I didn't appreciate and where I think he he uh, said some unhelpful things is you know, when he makes the comment of some Christians like to think of God as above all that, knowing everything, in charge of everything, calm and unaffected by the troubles in in his world. Well, the most generous reading I can give of that is to say there's an element of truth in that. If by that he means God is just not distant like a deist kind of picture of, of, of God. But the Bible also is very clear that God is sovereign, and that uh, he doesn 't grieve in the same way that we as human beings do, and that he 's not suddenly up in heaven fretting because there 's this problem that he couldn 't have foreseen or didn't wasn 't prepared for, and now he 's somehow uh, you know unsettled by all of these realities that that uh, there's a there 's a theological uh, term here that that systematic theologians like to use it's called god's aseity meaning that that god is not uh that god is not in some sense affected by these things on earth that his that he remains uh unchanged by these experiences and uh so it just felt like to me like he got one side of a biblical tension and just gave up the other side of the tension in you the way that he expressed it. Bit. Yeah. And so um th- that was just my frustration with that and you know I Tom Wright is uh is, is someone who is incredibly gifted and a, a great thinker in many ways. Uh and so it's disappointing to me because I feel like he really should know better and sometimes uh I think there I think you could get his point without giving up what he gave up in those in those sentences.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I I don't know where Tom stands on the spectrum of God's sovereignty. Any any
0: idea? Um well, he leans more reformed. Um he doesn't tend to fit nicely in those kind of categories. Uh but yeah, he I mean he he definitely leans more okay. reformed. So I I think if I think if you asked him uh about God's sovereignty, he would say, "Well, absolutely God is sovereign over all things." Um, how he'd work that out, I'm not sure, because again, most of his writing is more in the realm of biblical theology, um, you know, sort of history and biblical exegesis, and less on the kind of high-level systematic theology kind of stuff. That um, not that he's incapable of of addressing that, he's brilliant, but he just hasn't written in those realms and doesn't really tend to deal in those categories very much.
1: Yeah it was it was almost like the article was a voice memo that he recorded on his iPhone and sent to Time and he
0: just he just said it too quickly and, yeah. and wasn't thinking through it. It's possible. Yeah. He's crazy brilliant. So yeah. well let's give some other resources um I think that um you know the gospel coalition is a great resource for some of uh for some of these things. Um as I was doing a little bit of show prep uh there was a um there's an article I came across. Um, actually, it's a link that the Gospel Coalition has to um, a breakout session that a pastor named Mark Vrogup. I'm not sure if that's how you say his name. I'm not sure. Yeah. He did a breakout session at um, the Gospel Coalition conference in Indy uh, last, yeah, last year, 2019. And uh, he's also done some uh some some preaching series on this subject of lament and grief. And so uh, that'd be some good stuff to get acquainted with. I think uh, as best I was able to look it over. And I think that um, any resources like that, that, that can help us would be, would be beneficial. I don't know if you had anything else to add to, uh, to this subject. I, I don't. Uh,
1: I, I confess, I haven't read much uh, on lament. It's just in, in this current com- climate, it's something I've been thinking through a little bit more. Um, which, I, which I feel like I need to repent that I haven't thought about it before. You know, like, like it, I think it shows that, my goodness, we have we have a I have a relatively easy life. You know, you know that yeah. that's, that uh, isn't full of isn't full of sadness. Um,
0: so. And I think too, this is an area where we in the in the prosperous West. Have much to learn from our brothers and sisters around the world who yeah. live in far more um, challenging circumstances than we often do here in the West. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Agreed. So um, we are at episode 13. And so when it comes to fun? an athlete.
1: It's also funny that we're talking about lament on episode 13, yeah. right? Like, like the <laughs> unlocked
0: number. Yeah. Lament, yeah yeah absolutely so uh we we absolutely had no conversation about this before the show so i have no idea what athlete we're going to pick so let's let's run through the list that i've come up with here and uh we'll talk through it so uh in in nfl terms uh dan marino obviously great quarterback for the uh dolphins uh I'm not even sure why I put Odell Beckham Jr. on this list, other than just the fact that he's yeah. a big personality. Yeah, we can um, lament
1: him. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Uh, Michael Thomas. That's an interesting one. Arguably good. arguably the best receiver in the NFL right now, at least yeah. one of the best two or three. And duly noted here. Ohio State. A yeah. graduate of the Ohio State University. Uh Continuing in the NFL, Kurt Warner, great quarterback for the, uh, for the Rams. And then for the Cardinals, led both the Rams and the Cardinals to uh, to Super Bowl appearances. And then um, moving into the NBA, historically, Wilt Chamberlain, obviously one of the five greatest players in the NBA history, right? I like Current, yeah. current players, uh, James Harden and Paul George. Mm-hmm. And then uh, from the realm of baseball, Arod, Alex Rodriguez. Yeah, I'd be, uh, I wouldn't be up for A Rod. I, I don't <laughs> That's think That's so. surprising. That's really shocking there. So, uh, and then of course, uh, quick mention of Ohio State, uh, Maurice Claret, one of their, uh, the key running back that helped lead them to a national championship back in 2002. You
1: met him once, right?
0: I did. Yeah, I did. Uh, and, um, and Kenny Guyton was a beloved backup quarterback at Ohio State who won some big games for him. So, in any case, uh, thoughts on who you want to go with here when it comes to episode 13?
1: Um, I, I would like to uh, strike off Odell uh, Beckham yeah, Jr. Yeah, clearly, clearly. Um, I'd also like to strike off Alex Rodriguez.
0: Yep, I'm good with that.
1: Um, I'd like to uh, strike off James Harden and Paul George. Agreed. Okay. So that leaves us with Dan Marino, Michael Thomas, Kurt Warner, and Wilt Chamberlain.
0: Yeah. Thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> well. Um, Dan
1: Marino may be the greatest arm of a quarterback of all time.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, he was so good. And – He was a guy that, man, the numbers that he put up went in the era that he played in. Imagine the numbers he could put up now. If you put him in these. Five years too early. Yeah. If you put him in these modern offenses. Um, But uh, yeah, I really enjoyed watching Dan Marino play. I thought he was fantastic. Um, And then um, I'm fine with getting rid of. Do we already eliminate Kurt Warner from this discussion? We have not. Okay. I'm fine with getting rid of him. Uh, He's a great quarterback. Uh, I don't think he's on the same level as Dan Marino. He had moments of greatness, but he also had moments of severe mediocrity. Well, and he, though, part of what makes him interesting is his backstory, right? That he... Bagging groceries, yeah. Yeah, he's bagging groceries, and then he ends up getting picked up by the Rams, I think uh even was playing in the um arena football league, yeah, right? I think that's right. Yeah. And so ends up leading the Rams to a Super Bowl championship out of nowhere. So yeah. I think that, you know, his backstory is interesting. Uh, but he also, you know, claims to be a Christian, which offends you uh when it comes to athletes. Yeah, so I don't like Christian athletes. Yeah. <laughs> so um to me, it feels like it's down to either Dan Marino or Wilt Chamberlain. Oh, we're striking off Michael Thomas then. I love Michael Thomas. Um, we have a bias against current athletes. Is that the... I, I tend to. Okay. And I'm probably, at one level, probably overcompensating for my obvious Ohio State uh, bias. I mean, there's you can't make an argument for Michael Thomas based on historical greatness compared mm-hmm. to these other two, uh, though he is unbelievable as one of the best. And historically, he's on a trajectory in terms of numbers. He's on an
1: exponential curve, are you yeah. saying? Yeah,
0: yeah. And uh, there, there are no signs of that curve flattening anytime soon <laughs> when it comes to uh, his stats. So, But I, I'm willing to strike him off the list if you are. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. He was great on my fantasy team this year. That's all, I'll, that's all I'll say about that.
0: Yeah. So, Dan Marino or Wilt Chamberlain?
1: Um, well, we haven't talked about Wilt yet. Wilt 100 Point Game, uh, probably the, probably the one of the one of the prototypes of what became the modern center in the nineties, right? And or eighties, yeah. nineties that we've since lost
0: um, in the NBA. Um, and I would say he. I think there was a season where he. Averaged fifty points a game. That's quite impressive. That that's just crazy good. Now, in fairness, I, I feel like there is some sort of contextual piece to that. When I think the number of big men during his day was not on the same level as it as it as it has been in the last you know thirty or forty years, right? Yeah. You know, basically his only competition during that era was um was Bill Russell. Yeah but he was still
1: amazing. Uh, yeah, I I think I think I'm leaning Dan Marino.
0: Okay. Yeah. Where are you leaning? Yeah, I think I think I think I'm good with that. You know, there's also the the element of um Wilt Chamberlain's uh off the court life uh is one that um is certainly not to be um uh Modeled, <laughs> not okay, one to be okay. followed. Um, <clears throat> Often reported that, on, yeah. Yes, uh, let's just say that he uh, his reputation off the court was not exactly uh, consistent with our own uh, biblical morals. So, mm-hmm. so we go with Dan Marino. I, I'm good with Dan Marino. If you're good
1: with okay, Dan Marino, let's I hate picking a it. dolphin, but we'll do it. <laughs>
0: okay. All right. Gotcha. Well, Matt, uh, what's the one thing you like this week? Okay, so uh obviously living the quarantine life uh one thing that's been a result of that is uh, that's produced is uh we've played a few more games in the Harmon household hmm. and um I like a game called Rise of augustus i don't know if you've ever played that with with the i think I've played family. it with you
1: yeah yeah, yeah, I think we've played that together yeah yeah
0: it it has elements of uh it's kind of hard to describe but it's like Ticket to Ride in the sense that you have mission, essentially, essentially missions to complete, and um, there are points for each mission, and, uh, just a, and also it, it scratches my itch of uh, sort of a historical bent to it and, and that kind of thing. So Rise of Augustus, that's my one thing I liked this week. What about you, John? Uh,
1: well, also living the quarantine life, I uh, I got a new book, uh, which Amazon, you know, started talking about. We're not going to deliver books for for a long time. I think I got mine in three days. But yeah. anyway, um, it is a it is from a book series of of classics, uh, where authors will take selections of those classics and put it into a book. And on one side will be the what we believe to be the original text, and on one side will be the English translated. So, um, I picked up a copy of uh Seneca uh who was a who was a senator in Rome uh how to keep your cool and so it's about uh his thoughts on anger how destructive anger was is sort of the first part and then the second part is uh is uh how to uh how to uh, parent your children not to be angry uh how to maintain your cool in the midst uh, of of anger um and he wrote this uh uh, to uh, uh, the Emperor Nero um, who had a great deal of anger himself and eventually killed Seneca
0: yeah obviously uh, Seneca was unsuccessful in yes. getting Nero to embrace his recommendations for curbing his anger
1: but, but it's a good translation it, it's been quite a fun read and it, it goes very quickly because um, I thought the one side would be in Greek and I'd be able to try to parse and read along it ended up being in Latin uh, so I am not
0: able to read and parse as I go along <laughs> Well, maybe you can pick up Latin as a result of the uh, the COVID nineteen crisis.
1: That'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, despite our best efforts to keep this thing under, uh, are we at fifty minutes now? I think we're right, right on the cusp of it here. So, we have uh, managed to accomplish our mission in the sense of covering various and sundry topics. That's for sure. When you consider. The range of things we've discussed this morning. So uh, I think all we are left with at this point is to say the Lord bless y'all real good. Later.